Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Robert Mercurio co-founding bass player of the glorious New Orleans-based funk jazz jam band Galactic. Founded in 1994 with influences such as the Meters and the JBs, Galactic has released 10 studio albums and established itself as one of this millennium's most assured funk-oriented acts. In addition to being a crackerjack ensemble on stage, the group has continued to push the creative envelope by incorporating traditional as well as progressive electronic and rap elements into its musical gumbo. In 2018, the enterprising band took ownership of the legendary New Orleans venue, Tipitinas. Robert, thank you so much for joining the show. How are you? Yeah, great. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well. That We're... was a good write-up. I got to give that. A, you, you summed it up pretty well in a, in, a, in a couple paragraphs there. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I think it's it's a lot to sum up because you guys have had quite a a career already so yeah, congratulations it's, it's crazy yeah we're just uh we this year we were celebrating our 25th year touring and uh it obviously came to a halt but um we had a good 25 year run before any any hiccups yeah well hiccup is paying mildly but uh yeah uh where are you today where are you coming right. to us from i'm uh in new orleans at our studio 
uptown. Okay. And uh, I understand you were certainly not from there originally. So how did you end up in New Orleans? I moved here when I was 17 to go to Tulane uh, as a student and just kind of immediately fell in love with it and really never left uh, outside of touring, but just, you know, made it my home. And I've lived here for now 30, over 30 years. Wow. So was it uh, any kind of culture shock at first or? It was. It's it's funny. I always feel like New Orleans is is in some ways like a couple decades behind. Like when I moved here in 1990, it still had a lot of aspects like it felt like it was in the 1970s still. It's it's just like the architecture, the 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 way people were acting, the 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 music, the whole vibe didn't seem like it was in the 90s. It, it seemed like it was still stuck in the 70s, which I love because that that was, you know, an era of music that I really enjoyed. So um, and, you know, it's funny, you know, now that it's it's the, the 2020s, um, I feel like New Orleans is just kind of getting into the millennial. I mean, the, the change of the, of the, the millennium. And it's just. I, I, I like that it has this kind of classic feel to it that, um, you know, it's not totally updated. There's definitely a rich history here and people really appreciate the culture and, and the history that the city has and they want to perpetuate it. Um, so, you know, when I moved here in 90, yeah, I, I felt like it still had some aspects of, of uh, yesteryear and also just musically and the culture and the food and everything was just very different from where i grew up in washington dc it was uh it was a a, a welcome change How, was your family surprised at that change or or i mean that that, that i enjoyed it that i liked yeah. it you know we had come down here a couple times as as a family um for vacations so my family's always loved new orleans They've appreciated that it has slightly, you know, it has like a European feel, it has a Caribbean feel, and that it feels unlike any other city in in the in the U.S. So um, they they knew that I was probably going to really enjoy it, and and being such, you know, I was a musician then when I moved down here, um, they thought that I would probably get soaked up into the into the world down here. I've always enjoyed it when I've gone, that's for sure. And my wife has some family in Morgan City, not too far away. And I have some good friends there. So, uh, you know, I don't get down there enough probably is the big thing. But, you know, just the ambiance and, and the music and the history, like you said, it's just runs through the, uh, the sort of fabric and pores of the whole surroundings, you know? Yeah, it does. It, it's really, it's the lifeblood of the city is, is, is pumped through through music and food and uh and it's just really celebrated and you don't find that so much in every other city you know people splintered off or they're they're trying to be another city or they're this and that but new orleans is really content being new orleans mm -hmm. so robert how did you first you know gravitate towards music and bass in particular and how did your musical sensibilities develop that's a good question i um I started playing bass. I was in, I think I was seventh grade. 
And um, Jeff, the guitar player in Galactic, we grew up together uh, in, in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And um, he got a guitar for maybe Christmas, I guess it was. And my other friend got a drum kit. And so we needed a bass player, you know, like I was like the third buddy and it was like, all right, we're going to be a band. And so, you know, I asked if I could get a bass and, um, and so I just, it kind of just was the, the left instrument for me to play. So, uh, and fortunately I kind of, liked it and, and it fit me well so um started playing and immediately was in a band basically i've kind of since i first the day i had my bass i was in the garage playing with jeff and my my buddy dave cooper on drums and um so i've always kind of immediately been in a band from the beginning and i tell a lot of young players that i think that that's a great way to start because there's a lot of uh inspiration you get from playing with other people and it keeps you interested in the in the instrument if you have this interaction, I think, more than if you're just cooped up in your bedroom practicing. And, you know, I mean, you have to do that as well. But I think that you, when you have other people to play with, you kind of push each other and, and your growth is exponential um, when you're, you know, when you're playing with people. And I've always been very band oriented. Uh, my musical tastes at first were more like punk rock stuff when I was younger. And then as I grew older, I really started getting into R&B and funk and jazz and, and all that kind of music. And that really moved me more when I was about 16. Um, so then I moved to New Orleans and the music down here really engulfed me and in, 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 in moved me into even more that direction of, of being into funk and, and jazz and R&B. So um, really haven't looked back since I've been down here, and that's been really my, my main focus and genre. You know, what I love always about New Orleans is just you could go to almost any you know, hole-in-the-wall music club or whatever, and you're probably going to find someone who's pretty damn good. Yeah, that's I tell people all the time, you know, they're like, oh, when should I come down to New Orleans? What time of year is the best time of year? And I say, you can come any day of the week, any time of year, and you'll guarantee, I mean, outside of COVID time, you'll guarantee to have and be able to find a good time. And actually, I encourage people to come really off of the holidays, because I think the holidays are, you know, they're kind of congested and inflated prices and this and that and you can just have a regular old monday night in the middle of august and have a hell of a good time so when you say you you know start getting an r&b and funk you know who are some of the acts uh, that you really found you know pretty engaging and and uh some of the specific players too yeah i mean i the, the thing that really pushed me probably into the funk realm was uh, Jeff's brother gave us a copy of Mothership Connection, the Parliament record. That's the record and, back there. Yeah. No, I know. And I know you said you saw us at the... Uh, the, <laughs> the gold store. one back there. Wow. Well, were you involved with that record? No. I just was uh, fortunate enough to be able to acquire that uh, some time ago. And it's my all-time favorite. So it's the Mothership Connection album and the single, Tear the Roof Off, right next to it. Oh, wow. That's an original from the 70s, so. 
And I'm not I'm not just saying that because I, I mean, I couldn't really see that in the background, but that record, it, it moved me and it changed, you know, like it, it was in I was in a spot in my life where, you know, I was I was getting a little, you know, I was moving on from from hearing punk rock music and stuff like that. And and then Mothership Connection. Um, so it must have been around 80. 85 86 that i heard that record and um and it just it just totally or maybe it was like 88 but um yeah it just moved me and then i started just kind of diving into more p-funk james brown obviously i'd heard james brown on the radio growing up always loved james brown and um and those players i mean i loved all of all of the players and I love that, you know, Bootsy Collins had come from from James Brown and P-Funk. Um, and those those songs and that stuff just made me dive deeper and deeper into into funk. And then when I moved to New Orleans, um, I became more aware of the meters and the New Orleans brass band scene and the Neville Brothers and stuff like that. So that really... Um, took took it up another notch and that i could see these people play regularly was really it 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 just you know in in dc i wasn't being i wasn't able to see as much funk as when you when i moved to new orleans it was just oozing out of every bar so um it was great and i could actually see some of the meters playing in small bars and you know meet george porter and meet leonos and telly and and um, and everybody was just really welcoming down here. New Orleans has a great aspect where the the musicians aren't as they're not very competitive. It's very a a everybody wants to kind of help each other kind of vibe. And that was very nice and, and a positive situation to be in when I moved down here. Was there any uh, particular player that you were like, yeah, I really want to, like, emulate that guy? I mean, I. George Porter Jr. from the Meters is like to me one of the best bass players in the world. He is just very creative. Comes up with with just great bass lines, great tone. Um, he's still an amazing player. He still plays very often, and um, he's definitely one of my favorites. Easily. Did did you get any sort of mentoring from him or anyone else in New Orleans? Um, yeah, he has been um, helpful in that kind of a way. Um, all of them have all, you know, all the older New Orleans musicians kind of have have taken us under their wing and, and given us advice. Galactic early on, our original singer was was Theral the Houseman to Cluet, and he was a good, you know, 20 years older than all of us. So when we first started touring, he was definitely a mentor and he had he had been through a lot before we had even stepped foot outside of Louisiana. So he was very helpful and, and, and uh, mentoring as, as, a, as a figure for the band and for us individually as people. Did you run into any uh, friction or skepticism? Like, you know, what do these white boys know about funk or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, and we still do probably, you know. It's like, and I understand where that's coming from, you know, but it, it, I can't not... I'm just gravitating towards it. I'm, I, you know, as much as, as you could say we're culture vultures and all that. And and it's true, but 
you know, you can't fight what you like. So, um, you know, all you can do is pay respect to to the people that have have created the music before you, and um, and hope that you know they respect what you what we do. Yeah, well, as long as you do it from the heart, you know that's that's what matters. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. You know, it's like we're we're not doing it calculated or for any reason besides just what we feel. Yeah, and it comes through. So that's that's a okay. proof in the pudding right there. Um, Thanks. So when you guys started out, uh, I guess you know it was you and Jeff, and then how did you uh, uh, connect with the other guys? Yeah, I mean, you know, we moved to New Orleans together. Um, he went to Loyola. I went to Tulane. We were, you know, jamming with different people and uh, slowly, you know, we had a bunch of different bands kind of pieced together and and it really kind of clicked when we met Stanton in like 93. Um, and he really, he had been in a bunch of kind of hard rock bands and heavy metal band or uh, punk rock bands and stuff like that. And he was playing a bunch of jazz, but he really didn't have anybody that he could play funk with and he was equally enamored with the meters and james brown and and you know p-funk so um when we met up at a bar one night and we started talking about music and and i asked him i said hey you know do you know a drummer that would like to do would like to jam with us or whatever and he's like do i know somebody man i'd love to do it so he uh you know, came over and we jammed. I believe it was like Christmas break or something. I think 1993, and we ran through a couple meter songs. And we started jamming and stuff like that, and we just kind of all instantly knew, like, all right, we found our people. So then we just slowly kind of pieced everybody else together. Rich, our keyboard player, really, he came along mainly because he owned an organ. So we were like. Who that had helps. an organ? I mean, in that time, in the 90s, like, there there wasn't a lot of gear out there and stuff like that. And we're like, oh, man, there's this guy. He lives in the neighborhood. He has an organ. So uh, we invited him over, and he, fell, you know, fell right in and was very like-minded in the love of the music and of that, that we all liked. So, yeah. And then, um, and then it came time, and we were like, oh, we should get a horn section and stuff like that. So... Definitely went through a few horn players, but um, but Ben was one that was willing to tour. So uh, he was he had gone out on tour with the Klezmer All Stars, and and he was willing to hit the road. So he became our sax player. And your first record, I think, was '96. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and I have I have most of them here, but uh, just so yeah. yeah, pulling off, which we're actually um, we're releasing a. Uh, a double vinyl 25th anniversary version of it. It has never, never come out on vinyl. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. Um, so, you know, when you guys first came out, you were primarily instrumentally focused and uh, definitely evolved over time in the sound and the approach. Out of the gate, you know, what did you guys envision for the band and, and what were you, you know, what were your aspirations? You know, I mean, Originally, like I said, it was just kind of like a fun thing to do, jam. Okay, maybe we can pick up some gigs locally. And, you know, we were all still in college and we were, um, you know, all dedicated to like finishing and graduating from college. So originally it was just like, let's have some fun. 
Um, but we took it seriously and we, you know, we, we promoted every show and we took every show serious. You know, we didn't want it to be just, um, some fly by night thing. You know, we were, we wanted it to be a band band and always have the same members and all that stuff. So, um, but then we gained some popularity locally and it was like, oh, wow, this might turn into something. Um, and at that same time, there was Modesky, Martin, Wood were, were starting to tour around and they were, you know, they kind of broke the mold of like, wow, this is like an instrumental touring jazz avant band that's actually playing rock clubs and touring around. And so they were a big inspiration for us to feel that we could possibly do the same thing. So, you know, we all decided, you know, as, as soon as we graduated from college, we would try to put a tour together and record a CD and give it a shot. And we all gave it the commitment of, you know, we didn't really give it a time limit, but we just all kind of gave the commitment of we're going to give it a shot and and travel around the country and and see if we can do it. And um, so we went out on tour uh, 1996, uh, the summer of 1996, and pretty much toured nonstop until COVID hit. Wow. Well, the um, as we go through these, Robert, I'm just going to throw out some tunes. You know, uh, I, I don't know if the, how popular they were necessarily, but they're ones that stand out to me. Um, but on that first record, I really loved uh, Do Rack. Ah, cool. Yeah, that was, I mean, people love that tune. We haven't played it, God, in years. Um, and truthfully, that song was just a jam in the studio. That was, I remember half of that record was just a jam in the studio, really. Like, we had some composed songs, and then our producer for that record, Dan Prothero, um, encouraged a lot of just, hey, go in there. Robert, start a bass line, you know, and then Stanton literally just came in with the drum beat and we had this great horn section that recorded that record with us and they came up with all those horn melodies. I remember they were just kind of off on the side coming up with the melodies and then they go onto the mic and they play the melodies. So that was just that was just an off the cuff jam that made it onto the record. There was a few like that. Actually, like pretty much the second half of the record is is all just jams that that came out. Yeah, nothing wrong with that, you know, especially at that time in the mid 90s. I mean, when you guys came along, it was just such a breath of fresh air for me and other funk lovers, I'm sure, because there was such a dearth of, you know, real instrumentation and funk, you know, for most of that right. decade. You yeah, know? it's true. There wasn't there wasn't the I mean, there was a resurgence kind of later, but you're right. I mean, all that I could find and that I could listen to was reissues of albums that had come out in the 60s and 70s there wasn't a lot of current music being created in that vein so um you know we loved it we just didn't know that there was other people around the world that loved it as well as much and uh luckily they did and uh and then i think kind of since then there's been a resurgence in in funk and it's kind of crazy we we think back sometimes that you know, it was 96 and we were loving music that was created 20 years before and music had changed a lot within those 20 years from the 70s to the 90s. 
And right now we're looking at the same gap of 20, 25 years of being on the road. And it doesn't feel as detached, you know, like if, if I'm making my point of, of there was, it just seemed very drastic. 90s music versus 70s music versus 20s, 20 music versus 90s music. You know, I, I doesn't, I, there just seemed like there was huge leaps and bounds that were happening um, through the 80s and, and stuff in, in production and whatnot that was changing music in, in new ways that, that had been kind of lost from the seventies. Um, but I think since then people have taken great efforts to kind of dig deeper and, and, um, and, you know, people like you, people like me that, that love funk music have, have kind of kept it alive. Yeah. At that time, I think too, Robert is kind of a counterculture movement, you know, with the uh, jam band scene helping it and all the festivals that started to, you know, proliferate. Yeah. And that's a funny thing, too. I mean, we never really saw ourselves as a jam band. We just saw and we still kind of just see ourselves as like a New Orleans band in New Orleans. All the bands just happen to jam. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> it's just the thing, you know, I mean, like New Orleans is known for, you know, playing long sets and some improv and and, you know, so we were just kind of doing what we saw the older bands doing in New Orleans. And then we start touring we weren't even really familiar with the jam band scene at all. And we started touring and originally we were kind of thrown in what was called the acid jazz scene. I don't know if you remember the term, but it was, it was kind of for bands like ours that were influenced by the seventies, but making funk music, but they called it acid jazz. And then, so we were kind of playing these like hipster bars and stuff like that on our first tour. Um, and not really, really aware of, the jam band scene and then i believe like widespread panic took us out on the road and stuff like that and we we became aware and we became exposed to the jam band scene and you know there's a faction of the jam band scene that that loves funk music so we just kind of found our people and or they found us and um and we've kind of been in it since yeah as a matter of fact because of the emergence of the jam band scene, I discovered some, you know, jam bands I wouldn't have ordinarily just because they were connecting somewhat with funk. So yeah, yeah right. Both yeah, ways. There was this, there's connecting dots. It's, it's funny how like, you know, people are like, well, describe jam band music. And it's like, it's, it's not really like a genre. It's more like, uh, like a Op life. openness. Yeah. An openness to, 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 to hearing music that's, you know, not on the radio and, could have improv and it's just such a wide variety. I mean, there's not a lot in common with the Grateful Dead and the meters, but they're both considered jam bands. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, and it's just a really wide, wide variety of, of music that's in the scene. So it can kind of be kind of be bad in some ways, because, you know, I think in, 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 layman's people you know layman they just think jam bands and they think oh just like a bunch of noodling and whatever and they don't think it's very like song oriented and whatnot so um i think that people that are in the scene really understand how many different genres there are within it and and the scope and the spectrum of of how deep the music can go yeah yeah that's a good point because i mean some of the uh tightest playing bands are maybe under that umbrella you right know? yeah I mean, it's it's true. There's like extremely tight bands that play very song focused music uh, that are just 
kind of bumped into it. Yeah. Um, Robert, now we were talking about Stanton. What is it about him? You know, obviously, especially for funk, it's so key to have that um, connection and that synergy uh, to lock in with the drummer and the bass player. What is it that you guys have in that regard? Uh, I mean, it, at this point, we played probably over 3,000 shows together. So we have a, a, a deep connection musically. Um, you know, he's just like, he's a, he's a, he's a great drummer. He's very versatile. He's, he takes his, his instrument extremely seriously. Um, and he just got it from the beginning. You know, when, when we first jammed together, he just got the idea and the feel. He studied that stuff. You know, he studied a lot of Zigaboo Modaliste. He, he studied a lot of James Brown and he just absorbed it in a real way that he wasn't just faking it. He was really trying to dive into to the feel. And, um, but he also grew up listening to a lot of punk rock music. So we kind of had a similar background. You know, we, we, we might play a little edgier and I think we did a little more when we were younger, um, where we were playing funk music, but with somewhat of a punk rock, um, attitude. And, um, so yeah, I mean he's just an amazing player, and he's just super dedicated. And 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 we we were we've been roommates, we've been you know tour mates, we've been uh, right before this. I I was at Tipitina's with him, and we were filming some PSAs. So you know, I mean we hang out all the time, and um, just an amazing player. Yeah, I mean I've seen him in so many different configurations and different acts through the years. He's just always trying stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he's willing to to play in all different... I mean, he's recorded with um, Corrosion of Conformity. He's recorded straight-up jazz records. I mean, he's just very uh, open to a lot of different kinds of music, and he does them all very well. Now, how would you uh, categorize your particular sound or approach to the bass playing? I am a less is more kind of... I definitely... Uh, and one thing that, um, Robert Walter from the great boy all-stars told me one time, he's like, oh man, some of the best bass players, they let the tone do the talking. And I'm a, I'm a fan of that, you know, like, like I'm not a, let me show off all my chops. I don't think the role of the bass is always to, I think the role of the bass is to play bass, you know, it's to, to kind of build the foundation keep some something steady throughout the song and i'm not a big fan of bass players that just kind of are all over the place all the time i really think you need to to, to build a, a strong foundation and a solid groove and let all of the other craziness kind of happen on top of that or below it i mean even the drums like i think the drums can go a little crazy if the bass players thing and in on you know in in line and just grooving and, and stanton's kind of one of those drummers he's, he's not like a p-funk drummer that's just gonna sit there the whole time and play you know the same backbeat he's kind of jazz oriented and trying to change and stuff like that so there's got to be something that just grounds it and to me i think it's strangely enough it's in the name of the instrument bass you know it's just like you are the bass of the music so um I'm always trying to think economically how, you know, I can play, how can I play this line that it's most effective, but I'm not playing too many notes and I'm not trying to fill too much space. I think there's a lot of, 
of groove in the in in the space that you leave. So that's kind of my ethos, and I think I I picked that up from bass players like Bootsy Collins and and George Porter, who that I think that's kind of been their attitude as well. I would agree with that. Although the one thing Bootsy did bring to James Brown was doing a little more with the bass. Yeah, he did, but he'd always stick to the groove. You know, it wasn't. I mean, he would play same groove for 12 minutes on a track, you know, and it was, it wasn't the, oh my God, you got, I mean, and, and he did, and he came up with really creative bass lines and, and he also did with P-Funk, but there was still a real steadiness to it. It wasn't, you know, once he got his line, he just laid in it and let, let the, I, I call it kind of simmering, you know, like never brought it to a full boil, but just kind of simmering along in a, in a groove that, that just kind of hypno hyp hypnotic in a way, you know, it just gets you, gets you nodding your head in this way that I don't think you would get as much if somebody was a little too busy. Yeah. And it's not just the tone, but also just his attack, I think too. Yeah. 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 Well, that's all in it. You know, I mean, attack, that's part of your tone, the whole thing. So uh, crazy horse mongoose came uh, later on, uh, which I also have here. And, um, these, I mean, out of the gate, these records were great. You know, I, I couldn't listen to them enough and they, they worked for whatever I was doing. It seemed, you know, uh, oh, that's so yeah. cool to hear. um, but I really liked, uh, especially love on the run on that one. Cool. That's one of the tunes I wrote. Nice. That was, a, and it's, it's ironic that I'm not, I don't even play bass on that track. It was a bass line I came up with and then Rich started playing it on the Moog and we just kind of, uh, it just kind of became a Moog line and it was, um, I remember I was home for the, it must've been some sort of holiday and I just kind of wrote that tune in my bedroom, the lyrics and the, and the bass line and the changes and stuff and, uh, brought it to the band and I just kind of wanted to come up with something a little less, um, I just kind of wanted to come up with something a little new and, and I thought that was still funky. So I'm glad you liked that one. Yeah. Um, and I would say the next one late for the future, definitely uh, you started to hear some changing in the group. Right. So what was going on that, you know, um, instigated or got you going in, in these other directions? Yeah. Good question. Um, you know, I think at that point we had been touring for about four years we had had a lot of different opening. We'd opened for a bunch of different bands. We had a bunch of different bands open up for us. We had just been around the world and, and heard a bunch of new styles. And it being from hip-hop to blues, um, I think we had just finished the tour having North Mississippi All-Stars open up for us. So you, you kind of hear um, some more slide, kind of bluesy riffs getting in there. and it was the first record that we recorded on Pro Tools, and that opened up our ability to in production. So it wasn't the first two records were recorded to analog tape, and they were definitely more of a documentation of where we were at. You know, we we were on the, on the road. We would go into the studio. We'd knock out the tunes, or you know, create some stuff jamming. Late for the future was the first time that we we started using the studio as a tool 
And, um, and we had a producer, this guy, Nick Sansano, who was very, uh, well-versed in pro tools. And he opened up our minds too of what we could do. Um, and so we, we, you know, started messing with loops and we started, uh, just kind of broadening our whole approach to songwriting and recording. And that was kind of one of the beginnings of, of moving deeper in that direction. Definitely. Um, did you feel like most of your fan base at that point was along for that ride? Or did some of them say, hey, you know, we like the other stuff? Yeah, yeah. There was, all, I mean, every move you make, there's always somebody that, that, or, you know, there's a group of people that don't like where, where you're moving, you know. And I know how that is as, as a, a fan of bands, you know, you, you, get, you get hooked on a band from a certain record or, or a show you saw. And, and a lot of people had gotten hooked on us through cooling off and crazy horse mongoose. And yeah, we took a little of a turn, uh, with late for the future, but, um, strangely enough, it was actually our biggest selling record. So, um, I don't know if that's just where CD that it was like one of the peaks of CD sales, you know, I mean, stuff started declining soon after that and just people purchasing music in general. Um, and it was it was definitely you know the band was was reaching uh, a good level of popularity at that time, so um, you know there wasn't as many haters on that record. I think there was more on the the next record, uh, Ruckus, which we went very sample heavy and loop heavy and deep into production, and um, that was probably the biggest record that made some fans you know kind of mad. And then it's interesting because some I, I see, you know, I, I talk to some of those fans now and they're like, oh, my God, I, I didn't like that record at all. But they're like, now it's my favorite record. You know, it's just like maybe they just weren't ready for it or it wasn't what they expected mm -hmm. uh, for us to do. So, you know, what's good for them. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know what's good for him. Yeah, like just come on for the ride. We got you, man. We're not, you know. But you know, I, I know how it is. I, I, I don't fault anybody for that kind of stuff. I, I completely get it. And, um, but at the same time, you know, we just didn't want to keep on making cooling off and crazy horse mongoose over, over and over again. You know, you got to kind of, not that we had to grow, but we just grew. It just happened through through our playing and our, and our history and our influences that were around us. So, um, and, and that's been to a fault. Uh, it's been the thing that I think has kept us going for this long is that we have had growth. Yeah. For me, I mean, I was right there with you guys and I was there from the beginning. Um, I think it depends on, you know, how you come to the band or the music in the first place too, you know, what yeah. your point of reference is. For me as a lifelong funk guy, you know, it was totally still in that vein. So I was good with it. Um, but um, I really liked on, on um, Late for the Future, um, As Big as Your Face is a ah, serious jam. Yeah. And um, Century City really rocks. Yeah. And uh, the Chocolate Milk uh, oh, actually yeah. speaks louder than words. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love that. I mean, Chocolate Milk was so funky. Um and it, it was rare because we hadn't recorded a cover tune at that time, I don't think. Yeah, I think it was all originals, and that was kind of one of the first cover tunes. Oh, no, we had done Ham's Hump on, on the Crazy Horse Mongus. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, there was, I mean, Century City was, for us, it was very produced. You know, it was like, whoa, this is, you know, a, way, a big leap 
in our minds of, of music that we were creating and recording. Um, and just lyrically too, you know, I mean, it was, it was all, the whole thing was, was a big, big jump for us. Um, yeah, as big as our face, as big as your face is, it's so funny that that comes from the name of that song just still cracks me up because we were, I think we were in Texas and on the menu, there was chicken fried steak as big as your face was the, the way they were advertising this chicken fried steak. And we were just so all thrown, thrown by that description. And it just became kind of a joke amongst the band. But, um, just a little side note, but yeah, that I'd say as big as your face is a little, that was, that was a little more kind of a nod back to the cooling off crazy horse stuff. But, um, I think at that point it was a little influence of Medesky Martin Wood in there as well. Yeah. The, the century city, is that the Los Angeles century city or a different one? Yeah. 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 I see. Uh, you got the Lakers hat on and, uh, so, yeah, yeah, we, we had had this kind of crazy night in century city um when we were opening up for widespread panic um and i think we were there for a few days we had some days off in la and met some girls and they took us back to their their house in century city and it was just kind of one of those nights and uh and influenced us to to write a song about it Yeah, I like. I had a lot of good times in Century City, except for there's nowhere to park. But that's most of LA. Ah, so true. Yeah, um, you jumped uh, ahead to Rockus, and you know, for me, that is it was then and still is one of my all-time favorite albums for Galactic. So that's cool. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's interesting how you know people. It was you know it, that compared to Cooling Off, they're very different. You know, I mean, Cooling Off is raw, sounds like a band just. Yeah, there you go. Sounds like a band playing in the studio together, and Ruckus was a little more, you know. Uh, I, uh, ben Elman, our sax player, once made an analogy of there's two kinds of ways of making a record. One is is similar to uh, a camera or a photo, you know, a photograph. It's just like a it's a quick snap, and that and you you get the band, and that's it. And then there's the other way to look at it, which is more like a painting, where you're you're slowly adding layers and you're 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 taking your time and you step back and okay, it needs a little more purple there or whatever, you know, or oh, I want to put a little tree right here. So you that kind of is where we were at in Ruckus, that we we at that point we had built our own studio, we had taken over production on our own, and we kind of got to to do what we wanted to do we had more time we weren't under the clock at a studio you know paying a hundred dollars an hour it was like oh we had all the time in the world to to work on production and making the music so we kind of started diving deeper into into the music And and it was also a time where we weren't really documenting what we had written we were using the studio to write what we were going to play in the future so it was the beginning of of writing music that we hadn't already been touring behind i like that analogy with the pictures that's very cool yeah it is it was a cool analogy that it's it's really stuck with me you know um of course with the painting part of it the problem there is you can try to be too much of a perfectionist and then it takes forever or you overdo it 
yeah, totally. And you never know when when the painting's done. And and that is is a fault to that that style or that approach for sure. And and yeah, like, oh, maybe I did add too much purple to that. You know, like, exactly. you know, it, it can be it can be a, a bad thing in the same respect. Yep. Um, so, well, as you made that transition, did it become more challenging to replicate those tunes uh, on stage? Yeah, it did. It became, it was kind of the first um, record where, you know, we wouldn't maybe play everything that's on the record live. There was some stuff that was like, oh, maybe that was just better left in the studio. Um, oh, or, you know, stuff that works on a record doesn't always translate to the live. And in 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 reverse, what what's played live doesn't always translate to the record uh, as well. So yeah, it became a it became a little harder to to, and we had to learn our songs, which was interesting. It was like it was to to kind of learn a song after it had been recorded, and it was the beginning of that kind of happening within our band. And also, it seemed like you know you had some hip hop and rap influence coming in too. So, was that something everybody in the band was into, or were just certain members kind of brought that to the group? Or yeah, we were all into it. You know, I mean, rap had we all really enjoyed it in the '90s. You know, and and rap is becoming more and more popular, um, and a lot of rap was sampling some of our favorite music, being James Brown, P Funk, The Meters. Um, so it just seemed like a natural progression for us to create music that was kind of in that style. Um, and then, so yeah, as you hear Ruckus, it was kind of the beginning of that. And then I believe our next record is from the corner of the block. So that was a full on, you know, us go diving even deeper into that world. Yeah. I love the way you're helping me transition. That's excellent. Um, <laughs> Before moving on from Ruckus, I want to mention a few key cuts for me. Uh, the Moyle, really hard edge track. You're right. Uh, All Behind You, Doomed, uh, really cooks and rocks. Nice. Those are uh, all kind of the heavier tunes, too. Yeah. You know, yeah, that that's true, too. I mean, we kind of brought in a bit of a heavier element in that record. Like, it got a little more distortion and, and aggression. And, and mm -hmm. you know, you kind of, I think, we kind of got our... our you could kind of see a little bit of our, our punk rock upbringings in there a little bit, you know, like in the moil and stuff like that. Yeah, Very that was, deceptive. it was good to, to see that coming to the fore and finding out that you guys weren't a punk. That makes more sense now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me and, and Ben, our sax player and Stanton and Jeff, uh, rich, not as much, but yeah, all of us had, um, had really grown up listening to aggressive music in that kind of a way. So, um, and, and maybe, you know, in our first couple records, we kind of, kind of hit it or pushed it, pushed it inside a little bit. And then it just kind of made its way out, you know, in, in, in the ruckus record. It's funny that some of the common threads between punk and funk, you know, go all the way back to, you know, like groups like Red Hot Chili Peppers and Fishbone. Oh, yeah. Big time. I mean, I, yeah, I love the Chili Peppers too. I mean, they were, they were one of my favorite bands you know in the 90s and in in that time you know when i was slowly kind of getting into funk and stuff and and um and you know like george clinton had produced a red hot chili peppers record freaky styly um so yeah there was a lot of connections with that kind of a thing and, and loved fishbone um so yeah it, it wasn't a far-fetched 
thing to kind of combine funk and punk, we didn't really go out seeking that. And I don't think that we really combined it as much as those guys did, but I think it just slowly got in there a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You guys were always a little more horn and, you know, sort of JB meters rooted than them. Um, Yeah. um, But the distortion you mentioned, particularly with some of the sax and like harmonica and stuff like that, yeah yeah definitely yeah i think like ben got uh, got a couple pedals you know and he wasn't just always playing in his natural tone um you know i think it's just we were a band we had been touring around for i guess ruckus came out maybe 2002 or three you know we'd been a band for eight years at that point and, and i think everybody was just looking for some new colors on their palette and that kind of made its way into the music. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much. <laughs>